0: Hello and welcome to this BMJ podcast about wellbeing, sponsored by Medical Protection. I'm Abby Rimmer, careers editor for the BMJ. It's half term this week so I don't have Cat Chatfield here to give the usual context of the interview, but I'm going to give it a go myself. We've been bringing you stories about doctors' wellbeing for a while now on the podcast, but we've noticed a pattern. Women will come on and talk about their own difficulties, while men will talk about other people's problems. So we wanted to dive into that a bit and called out on Twitter for men who would be willing to open up to our listeners and share the stories of their own mental health. This interview is with Zeeshan Qureshi, a consultant in paediatrics, author, and someone who has done a TEDx talk on mental health. In this conversation, we talk about why it is that men are particularly disinclined to open up about their difficulties at work, and what Zeeshan has done to try and support his own mental health.
1: My background is I'm a paediatrician, although I'm currently on a year's shared parental leave, just had twins, they're eight months old and they are hopefully asleep now. I do that part-time though, the paediatric stuff. Um, I do a lot of advocacy work with regard to mental health. I gave a TEDx talk on mental health for healthcare professionals in New Zealand a couple of years ago that was very well received and I've been involved in projects um, within hospitals that I've worked in to try and make things better for us. I also um, run a medical publishing company and have written a few books and I've got another other few interests I won't bore you with around uh, global health, around paediatrics and entrepreneurship.
0: Brilliant. So we wanted to talk to you a bit today about... Um, the difference between men and women when it comes to mental health and whether men are maybe not so good at asking for help when they have a problem. And I wanted to, just to kick us off if you have any thoughts broadly about that.
1: Yeah, well, should I start by sharing a bit about my own journey and my own yeah, challenges? Yeah, please do. I grew up in a traditional Pakistani immigrant family and I very much was taught to to get on with things, to work hard, to take things on the chin and just keep doing your best and if there's a problem do better and yeah that, that was very positive for me for a lot of my life, I did very well on exams, I was able to get my first choice jobs as a junior doctor but things didn't go well forever and it was a bit of a ticking time bomb for my mental health. Things became really difficult for me when I was working in a in a children's intensive care job and my dad got really sick and I had that challenge of seeing children at the point of death in my day job and coming home not knowing whether my dad was going to die and it was really hard and then my dad got got worse, got admitted to intensive care him himself, so I was going from an intensive care during the day to an intensive care in the evening and I didn't share what I was going through, I just kept going, I kept working and no one knew until the point where I just couldn't take it anymore and I, I broke down in the middle of a shift, tears like running down my face and my colleagues were so worried about me, they asked me to go home and I was seen by a psychiatric team who you know said that actually I'd left things too late that I should have got more support and I could have done a lot better with that intervention earlier and you know I didn't require any medications or anything but I had regular visits from a psychiatric nurse and and I got better and since then I just realised okay I never want this to happen again I want to talk about problems early get support early and just remember that there will always be people around to support you
2: and Zashan what do you think it was that made you feel unable or unwilling to sort of let colleagues know what was going on for you at home do you think
1: it's it's hard I mean you know you know how it is cat on the front line, you're always taught that the patients come first that you have to look after them before you look after yourself and working in intensive care that's the most extreme example these are children that will otherwise die without the interventions being delivered and especially as you get more senior people are counting on you to support them rather than expecting um, them to support you um, and, and for me, my definition of work was quite clear. I was there as the healer. I was there to look after the children and uh, my knee, my knee, my knees came secondary. As long as I could physically walk <laughs> and talk, <laughs> then I, I got on with my job. And I mean, I did, I, I did a good job. I'm really proud of the quality of care that I can deliver. But I just wish that I'd recognised that I need to deliver that quality of care to myself as well.
0: Zishan, you're joining us today because I put a call out on Twitter asking for doctors who might be willing to come on our podcast and talk about uh, mental health and men's mental health. So I wondered, why did you respond to that call? And what brought you here?
1: Well, you know what? I do actually have a little bit of anxiety when it comes to public speaking and especially this new kind of podcast here of just like, let's have a conversation and then don't worry, 10,000 people are going to hear it. It'll be fine. (laughs) Um, But I just think this really uh, matters to me. I remember when I gave my um, uh, TED talk back in 2019, I was so anxious about the idea of coming forward. And what I did just before was I just took a little walk outside and I just thought of the people that were really struggling and thought my friends that had, taking taking their lives, people that were really depressed, myself when I was really in that place of darkness. And I realised actually that for them, anything I do that puts mental health in the spotlight, that talks about potential solutions, that honours like their story, is something that is really worthwhile. And that's what I think of what you guys are doing, uh, because I've been listening to your podcast. And... If this reaches one person who actually says, wait, I have a problem, then they can do something about it. And the biggest thing that came out of my TED talk was individuals contacting me saying, like, thank you for speaking out. I realise that I'm not coping. I need some support you've encouraged me on that journey. And, you know, there are some changes as well in terms of hospitals and structures, but I think reaching people on an individual level is where I get a lot of, a lot of satisfaction. You had men reaching out to you because it feels like there are more women in this space talking openly about their kind of mental health and, you know, to have a man do that, it does feel slightly unusual. I wonder if that's kind of prompted a response from from men to you. Well, you know what, the... It, it did happen in much smaller numbers, but the the, the male that <laughs> reached out to me in the most open way met up with me in a place called um, Café Le Noir. So we met in a dark room um, where food was served by blind people and where we experienced blindness. So he needed total darkness and anonymity in order to share with me the struggles and the pain that he was going through. And that's the only time that that particular individual has opened up to me about his his challenges. So even though I've reached men, there's still, like you said, this bias towards men having a lower propensity to, to come forward. And when they do come forward, being more aware of people maybe judging them or seeing it's them. It's interesting because
0: in I was lo- trying to look up some stats before this podcast that I was then late for, so I'd obviously prepared myself but not time-wise the um those figures in the who that just said that doctors have a propensity to they're more likely to diagnose women with depression and anxiety than men even if they display the same symptoms which i thought was really interesting and it sort of maybe is telling about how we perceive men men's mental health versus women but anyway that might be a discussion for another time
1: Well, you know what? I think think it is an important point in that for some individuals, having a label can be a, a positive sense. But I think for a lot of my friends, maybe there's a gender disparity about it. They actually would much prefer to say, look, here are the issues that I'm dealing with. I want to maybe have some support managing them. If you don't label them as having a disease in the process, then... It can be a much less scary interaction to have, and I think it's also something that certain communities are more likely to do. I know um, from my from my community, uh, my Pakistani background, people don't like labelling themselves with mental health disorders, but they are some of the most supportive people in my in my life. People from my community and will help and provide me with what I need. So I think sometimes actually. It's not so much about people refusing to get support or not acknowledging a problem. It's people not wanting to be labelled as having disease. And unfortunately, we're more willing yeah. to do that.
2: I mean, there's so many fascinating things and rich things in in, in what you just sort of picked up, sort of what you just expressed, Sashan. And I suppose you talked about this desire to feel stronger and to appear stronger. But why do you think we equate mental illness or mental health difficulties with with weakness
1: yeah i mean that's a really important question i think the issue and i'm finding this as a parent is that when you are children you know nothing other than the norms that get put in front of you and then as you get older you get an extension from your friends from um the culture from your workplace and very much that is something that we are programmed to in the society that we uh, grow up in. We still, for, for people of my generation that are now in their 30s, men, and particularly people from a certain backgrounds, so my background being from, the, uh, Pakistan, from Pakistan, I've very much been taught about men being the leader of the family, about being the breadwinner, about being strong, about dealing with... Problems. I mean, my parents have found it very difficult even just accepting that I've chosen to take a year of paternity leave. You know, I, people have literally said that should be a woman's job. Why are you doing it? You should be earning money. <laughs> you should be working. And if you have that repeated to you over and over again through multiple influences over your life I mean you know my my babies in their first two years of life are forming a million new synapses every day I I, uh, read about from the Harvard Center of Developmental Studies Uh, you can fact check that Duncan if you want (laughs) (laughs) Um, but the um, yeah why are you going to believe anything else like this is where a lot of truth comes from truth is from things that are repeated over and over again again to you and there's two separate discussions one is Like you're doing, Kat, how do we train and educate children early on as to what a norm is? But the second one is, okay, what do we do for people who have potentially for twice as long as I've lived had a certain norm put forward that we're now realising is unhealthy? And it's complicated. It's very complicated.
0: And we'll pick up some more of that complication in a moment.
3: But first, here's a word from our sponsors. At Medical Protection, we know how challenging recent times have been for all medical practitioners. And as they work tirelessly to look after others, we wanted to help our members focus on their own physical, mental and emotional well-being. So we've partnered with ICAS International to provide a confidential one-to-one counselling service offering support for issues such as stress, burnout, anxiety and conflict. Members can also access a wellness app to help monitor, measure and promote balanced healthy living, as well as a host of handy podcasts and webinars. Our well-being program is just one of many reasons for doctors to choose medical protection. To find out more about membership, which also includes comprehensive protection, advice and risk prevention support, visit medicalprotection.org
0: happened differently or anything someone could have done that would have helped you open up sooner and talked about how you were struggling
1: yeah it's a good it's a good question i think when it comes to hospitals there is so little time and so little slack in the system to provide support to people that things will just go unnoticed and i think you know i was at the point of having clinical depression And yet I was being seen informally by trained doctors for 12 or 13 hours a day. And despite knowing about depression, about psychiatry, about psychiatric assessments, whereby a lot of it is actually just looking at someone and observing their behaviour, none of them realised what was going on. So I think something really positive is just having that space where people can... Actually, open up and be supportive. One thing that's changing a lot of hospitals is well being checks are being instigated more routinely by educational supervisors, but even that has its problems because you always have this fear that people are going to judge you for it, and then any problems you might have in the future, people are going to be triggered to say this is a mental health problem, what's going on? One of my colleagues. A paediatrician at Gray Ormond Street called Professor Joe Riley. Called Doctor Joe Riley, not professor, but he's smart enough to be a professor. He um, instigated a policy of essentially an anonymous um, consulting room, whereby he would sit somewhere and anybody could come in and ask for support for any aspects of their life. No notes were taken, and published it and it was a really really positive experience for a lot of people I mean it was triggered by something very sad whereby a trainee killed herself at work after going through some of their challenges and you know he again said I don't want this to ever happen again so the first thing is creating that time and that space for people to to share so that we can deal with deal with problems when they arise and I think one thing that I found really interesting was that in Holland there was some research looking at the relationship between whether a hospital environment was educationally supportive, supported more broadly and the well-being of staff. And it was very clear that there was a correlation. One thing that I really, really want to hammer home in any of these discussions is that we often think that individuals need to take responsibility for their mental health in work, but the evidence is quite clear That institutional changes and institutional interventions are far more powerful. And one analysis I looked at said that they were twice as important as that on an individual level. And if you take a step back, actually, what we're doing is something very unnatural in the first place and something that we just haven't been trained to do. You know, I've done night shifts whereby two babies have died. And, you know, imagine what the parents do. The parents they're not going to work the next day, the next week, might not ever go back to work. Whereas I slept for a few hours, then did six further night shifts and just got on with it. Had no one to talk to, never had any therapy for it or discussion. We live in a system that artificially significantly increases our mental health risk. And that comes with the responsibility of that institution to support our mental health through the problem.
2: Just what you're saying, Zashan, just resonates so much with me about this kind of absolutely bizarre situ- situation where we have you know frontline staff who are just somehow expected to deliver compassionate care um and yet also not feel anything about the experiences they're going through i mean i certainly remember as a very junior doctor um you know working in oncology obviously a lot of patients were terminally ill and, and died and you know one one particular patient was was pretty much exact same age as me you know we sort of had the same interests, and you know we sort of developed a relationship you know with essentially a sort of friendship beyond beyond the kind of clinician patient relationship um and then she died and I found it really difficult but there was absolutely no kind of acknowledgement or support in how to navigate that in the first place and not to kind of or how to kind of maintain that relationship in a way that was professional and then how to manage it when she died it was just a really difficult time at a time when I'd you know moved away from home kind of was in a new place perhaps didn't have many friends you know doing night shifts you know actually had been married but living away from my husband because you know he was working a different a different city you know it was just an incredibly traumatizing setup And, and the fact that we kind of put clinicians into these setups um which you know seem almost inevitably to kind of create these outcomes where we struggle with our mental health um it's just kind of slightly unbelievable really um yeah so anyway i'm being you know he's getting angry about it even now i suppose um but i think you're, you're right i think sort of this kind of humanising of medicine and this acknowledgement that it's not really possible to deliver medical care or clinical care without being a human being and having emotions and experiencing all these things and that we have to find ways to support and express those and deal with those like supervision or therapy or wellbeing checks. You know, I think it's just absolutely critical. That's just a rant. We can edit that out, Duncan. (laughs) And there's not even a question. Avi, do you have a question that's not just a rant?
0: No, I Well, I, I really appreciate your rant. I think it um, reflected really nicely on what Seshan said. The, one thing I did want to pick up on, Zeshan, for when you were, you were speaking is you mentioned that um, if you opened up about your mental health problems, you'd then go on to feel judged and feel like it was kind of used against you in the future. And I was really interested in that, because as you previously said, you know, you're working with doctors who are trained to pick up on and treat medical health, mental health problems, but then To say that you would also feel judged if you suffered from them is very counterintuitive and I wonder why you know Kat and I have spoken about this on the podcast before but I'd still be interested to hear your thoughts on why medics find being mentally unwell themselves so shameful and why it is a source of judgment
1: well I mean if I give you an example I remember being in a clinic and we had this really really sad case of a single mum who had a girl who was just very very disturbed she was struggling to um, get on with school she was struggling to maintain relationships and that mum when I was in clinic with her left just saying I'm helpless I don't know what to do this is a real struggle and then after she left I got really upset and I released uh, released some tears because that to me was appropriate. And the response I got from a supervisor was that's inappropriate. There's something mentally wrong with you. You shouldn't be crying in that manner. I worry about your ability to cope. And I was very lucky because I have developed my own network of supporters beyond just my immediate job and I think that's a struggle people often have you get allocated a random supporter that is not in any way matched to you and doesn't necessarily have the time or the resources to provide you the support you want and you know my colleagues outside of that situation said like look no Zishan, that was an appropriate reaction do not feel guilty about it anybody would react in a negative way to that but Actually, there is this element of, of judgment. And it's partly related to historically how a lot of people have coped with this. I mean, some of my senior colleagues have just said, look, you just have to block out your feelings. You just have to take it on the chin and and carry on. And that might be something that works for certain people. But my belief is it's not it's not healthy and that releasing sadness, releasing negative emotions is a positive way of dealing with those challenges and an appropriate one to end. and Kat, like you were saying about the relationship with your uh patient you know i think a few people might actually sneer or snigger at that idea but actually for me we are like human first and and doctor second and of course that doesn't mean you shouldn't have you should have the same relationships with patients as you do with um friends but to be emotionally connected to the issues that you see, to actually like listen and value the conversations you have and share a journey with a fellow human being, to me that's part of what I really enjoy about the about the job.
0: Do you have any advice for anyone who might be struggling with their mental health, especially if they're working in an environment alongside people who may have those slightly more I'm not sure if old fashioned is the right term, but sort of more traditional views of, you know, not being emotional and and not showing that human side of medicine. Would you have any advice for someone on how to kind of cope with that?
1: Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. I mean, when I think back to my friend Kerry, I think the biggest challenge that we have in medicine is defining ourselves by our job and by defining ourselves by our job, we define ourselves by what our seniors label us as. And I think one of the biggest changes that I've made recently is I've stopped thinking about my professional life and my personal life being separate and I have a list of goals that I look at every day that have goals in every domain of what I'm doing. And I allocate a timetable for the whole week. So I've got a slot for each hour of each day. And I say, okay, like these are my goals in life. How do I achieve them all in that, in that time frame? Like career is only one of 12 or so different domains. And I think if you take a step back and think, okay, I need a life plan, not a work plan. Then suddenly just slaving away nonstop, in a hospital for a job that you don't enjoy for the approval of people that you don't like doesn't make sense when you can sit and watch your children grow up or spend an evening out with your with your partner or you can learn to play piano think of that bigger picture think of your life not your career and I think that's a big change in the right direction
2: Yeah, I just want to pick up one more thing that you said Abby this um, you sort of asked the question about how we can cope and I personally i have a bit of an allergy to the word coping because i think so much of what zishan has been talking about has been this idea that you have to keep coping and you have to keep going and you have to keep working um and that i think that's the kind of expectation we need to release ourselves from because you know there is no expectation that one should be able to cope with everything all the time um you know it it is completely normal and natural to be overwhelmed at times, and it's not a failure and it's not a weakness. And I just think, yeah, if we're going to call for anything, I'm like, can we ban the word coping, <laughs> please? It's, uh, it's okay to not cope.
1: <laughs> it's 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 interesting, isn't it, Cap? Because I think the challenge though is not letting things swing the other way around because we've chosen a job that requires a high level of and emotional resilience and that requires the ability to deal with working with complete strangers in complex situations and i think the 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 line is quite hard to define of what you kind of just accept and get on with and what you react to but it's important to have that idea in in place um other, otherwise i don't think medicine is the right job for you like we we are not even just doing night shifts like you have to accept that if you're doing night shifts there's going to be a physiological stress on your body that will probably reduce your life expectancy (laughs) um and i think i think i think i think we have to be realistic about that whilst at the same time saying that the phrase coping is used completely inappropriately by a lot of people
2: it's interesting isn't it this idea of of the emotions because you know from a lot of mindfulness approaches it's about having the emotions allowing yourself to have the emotions and experiencing the emotions but then that doesn't dictate anything else so that doesn't dictate what you do or how you act or you know just experiencing you know this permission to experience emotion as a thing in and of itself without it having an implication for your practice or your resilience or your future career I think that's a kind of really interesting challenge for us to to get to that place,
1: yeah, and I mean, I think for me, understanding exactly what you said, I wish I'd learnt about it as a child. To know that an emotion is something that you feel; it's your body responding to a situation. I'm clearly using medical terms here, and you've got a a choice as to how you develop your relationship with those emotions. And I think for me, the most important thing is what you just said: saying, "Okay, I have an emotion." What is it? And I really like the idea of emotional granularity. So when you feel something like anger, like really hone in on what it is. Am I angry just non-specifically? Or am I frustrated? Or do I feel a sense of injustice? Um, Do I feel depressed? Am I tired? And then think, okay, I felt that. What am I learning from this? What can I do with it? Thank you, emotion. I'm going to let you go now has just been transformative to to my my life and I think if I didn't listen to those then I'd be quite sad because I've realized the time I'm most happy is when my actions my thoughts and my emotions all align and the more that I do that the happier I am and the better my life is
2: 99% of the time I'm hungry (laughs) when I'm angry sorry that sounds very dismissive that was a really beautiful thing you just said though. i didn't mean to dismiss it by using humor But,
1: but you know what kat it's one of those things it's so obvious that we need food and you know babies make this kind of clear because they do nothing but feed at the very at the very start and it's very much about okay respond to their hunger cues ensure they feed follow their growth chart. But then as soon as you become an intensive care registrar on a night shift, it's like babies and children matter. You don't. It doesn't matter if you don't eat. Just get on with the job. And for people, it makes me so sad when someone goes through a whole shift and says, I haven't had the chance to drink anything. I haven't peed. And actually, I'd be in renal failure by the definition of my actual own medical knowledge. Um, and there's th- simple things like saying, as a senior, I'm going to protect the lunch breaks and the coffee breaks of my stuff, show that you really care, which is positive, but also just provide you with the fuel that your body needs to, to, to keep going. Um, so I don't think it's a trivial thing because actually... That's part of the problem that we've been told to think of it as a trivial thing. It's part of who we are, what we need, and we need to acknowledge it and incorporate it into the workplace. i travelled to a lot of hospitals. I mean, when I gave my TEDx talk on wellbeing, it was in New Zealand. And when I went to the Starship Hospital there, which was designed uh, by children or strongly by children, which is a pretty cool idea for a children's hospital, they had free hot meals available for staff all day it was a really positive thing because it removed that friction force and it sent a message saying that we care about you eating.
0: It's really interesting that we've got round to this topic Zishan. because when Kat and I very first started doing our work on doctors well-being for the BMJ we we wanted to think of a campaign and focus on sort of a concrete thing that we could campaign on and the issue that we eventually settled on was breaks and doctors being able to take a lunch break or a coffee break and the importance of what does seem like a simple intervention actually having a huge impact on people's well-being so it's quite interesting that we've got there in this discussion
1: yeah I mean I I, I think it's so important I mean you know going back to my kind of life plan rather than career plans that I put out I have lunch breakfast and dinner mapped into my timetable every single day Um, and it it just means I'm more productive it means I'm happier and it's not just about the food it's also often the time that your colleagues can open up to you can share with you and that you can form those friendships and those relationships Um, it's so important in many many ways and I think we really need to as you are doing and this is another reason why you're not a failure (laughs) um, um, prioritise the things that really matter like taking those breaks and being able to eat I mean, it's, it sounds ridiculous that as a doctor, I'm saying we need to eat regularly, but yeah, you know, we don't pick what the needs are. That's that's one of them and we need to prioritise it.
0: So that's it for this episode of the podcast. We've added links to Zeeshan's TED Talk in the podcast text. I'll be back with Kat soon for more well-being. We'll be talking about the importance of culturally aware support, something that Zeeshan touched on here, and why one person feels that rotating is key to helping doctors' well-being. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Bye!